0: If you would, please join me in prayer. Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts receptive to your word, that, Lord, in doing so, we might stand in awe of you, that we might consider the beauty of the way that you have designed us, the way, Lord, that you orchestrate our lives, your sovereignty, and the way, Lord, that you always seek to fulfill us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that as we approach this passage this morning, that your Holy Spirit would teach us through his word. We thank you for this, Lord. We pray in your son's finished work alone. Amen. Well, last week we began our study of Matthew chapter 19. And as I mentioned then, this is a new section here in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is making his way towards the city of Jerusalem where he will lay down his life as a sacrifice for his elect. And along the way, he is going to instruct his followers about life in the kingdom of heaven after his resurrection. So, for example, in chapter 20, the the mother of two of his disciples will make a bold request of Jesus to have her son sit at the right and left when he assumes his throne. And once again, Jesus must teach about what it means to be great in the kingdom of heaven. But also, along the way to Jerusalem, Jesus will encounter severe opposition from the Jewish religious leaders, which will eventually escalate to the final section of Matthew's gospel of our Lord's death and resurrection. We saw the first of these confrontations last week when we saw the Pharisees challenge D- Jesus with a question concerning divorce. They wanted to know if it was lawful to divorce one spouse for any reason— it was a question that no matter how Jesus was to answer, someone would be offended. If he was too liberal in his interpretation or too strict, someone would take an issue with him. And masterfully, Jesus doesn't answer their question as they expect. He takes them back to God's original intention in marriage. That when God joins a man and woman together, they should strive to make every effort to stay together because the two have become one-fleshed. What God has joined together, let not man separate. His response is that couples should strive for this one flesh unity, first and foremost, because the Bible says so, which he understood to be God's words. But we also saw from Ephesians 5 how the Apostle Paul revealed that the one flesh relationship is to portray the everlasting covenantal relationship between Jesus and the church. It does not supplant that relationship, but rather marriage models it. Spouses are to love and to serve one another in order to reflect this love that the church is supposed to have for Christ and that Jesus has for the church. Our Lord does not sugarcoat this. How difficult it is to do this. Being married under such death till us part circumstances is hard. And the Pharisees pick up on this. They want to know if this is the case. Verse 7, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Now, this is a strong statement. To divorce your spouse for another person mars that image of the one flesh relationship. The disciples also hear the seriousness of this. No doubt, they're thinking, well, well, what if I get stuck with an unpleasant wife? Verse 10, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it's given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Now, I find our Lord's response to be highly interesting here. He is essentially saying, if you have no desire to live in a one flesh relationship, then you shouldn't marry. Marriage is not for everyone. But in the way that Jesus states this, we should also carefully note that Jesus honors the state of being unmarried. And we shouldn't just fly by this passage without taking a moment to stop and think through it just a bit. Because unless we understand the historical context here, we're not only going to miss something beautiful here, but I think the contemporary church is neglecting a vital service to those who are single within our congregations. So we need to linger here a bit, and I want us to to do so by seeing how Jesus redeems the status of the eunuchs through his words. Then I want us to take a look at 1 Corinthians to, to think a little through of Paul's understanding of singleness. And after that, consider how the church should respond to those among her that are single. Now, the place to begin is understanding how the unmarried were viewed in Jewish culture. They did not look favorably upon anyone who willingly chose to be single or those who might choose to remain single after a spouse died. And this stems from their understanding of the creation mandate. In Genesis chapter 1, the crown of God's creation is when he created mankind in his own image. We read in Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 and 28, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. The Jews assume the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth should be applied to every male and female on the planet for all time, not just Adam and Eve, but to all people. They had a God who loved and cherished life. Therefore, men and women should get married and produce offspring. And then when we get to Genesis chapter 2, we see how God honors Adam and Eve with the gift of marriage. And from that, we we can see how they assumed, ah, well, this, this is the blessed state of life for every human being. An argument from silence led them to believe that to remain single was unacceptable. Now, added to such thinking was that it was only through the procreation of the Jewish bloodlines that the inheritance of the land could be passed down. Therefore, you're expected to get married and have children. This was so prevalent in Jewish thought that parents worked hard to arrange marriages before even children were born, so that they could make their own, before they could even make their own choices about their spouse. It was what was expected during the time. And in addition to this mindset, there were also laws regarding who may serve in the priesthood and who may participate within the sacred assemblies that also shaped their thinking here. So, to the offspring of Aaron, those alone who might serve as priests, we have Leviticus chapter 21, verses 16 through 24. I'm going to read those to you. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron, saying, None of your offspring throughout their generations who has a blemish may approach to offer the bread of his God. No one who has a blemish shall draw near, a man blind or lame, or one who has a mutilated face or a limb too long, or a man who has an injured foot or an injured hand, or a hunchback or a dwarf, or a man with a defect in his sight, or an itching disease or scabs, or crushed testicles. No man of the offspring of Aaron the priest who has a blemish shall come near to offer the Lord's food offerings since he has a blemish. He shall not come near to offer the bread of his God. He may eat the bread of his God, both of the most holy and of the holy things, but he shall not go through the veil or approach the altar because he has a blemish that he may not profane my sanctuaries for I am the Lord who sanctifies them. So Moses spoke to Aaron and his sons and to all the people of Israel. Therefore, a man here, as it's described, who was impotent or castrated, even by injury, could not serve and enter into the holy of holies. And then we also have the law of Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 1. No one whose testicles are crushed or whose male organ is cut off shall enter the assembly of the Lord. When the day of sacrifices took place, the eunuchs had to remain outside the sacred assembly as a means of demonstrating holiness. Now, in our day of inclusivity, this seems harsh, doesn't it? It seems counterintuitive to a Christ who previously said in Matthew, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But there were two reasons for being this stringent about this. First, as a male, a eunuch was unable to demonstrate the covenantal sign of circumcision. One could not prove that they were a member of the community. And second, the holiness requirements concerning the ritual worship of Israel were intended by God to be that stringent. Nothing unclean or with a blemish could be brought into his presence and not be punished. Not even the tiniest of sins could be before him without atonement. God is that pure. He is that holy. The holiness ritualistic laws were intended to teach that God was dead serious about being set apart and that eventually convict Israel of her sinful state, and each person would need to enter into his presence by faith through the righteousness of his son, Jesus. It's only through Christ that we can approach the Lord's throne. But prior to the Christian age, in the minds of the Jews, to be a eunuch or to remain single, especially for men, was inexcusable. And yet now, in two sentences in Matthew chapter 19— Jesus redeems the eunuch. We ask to remember that the term eunuch was applied to anyone who chose to remain celibate or was incapable of procreating. And he provides three categories here. Those who were born eunuchs, meaning those who entered life without sexual organs or who were infertile. Then there were those who were made eunuchs by men, either through an accident or someone willingly participated in such a procedure. And the latter state would refer specifically to Gentiles because no male Jew would willingly surrender his sign of circumcision. And then Jesus says those who make themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He states there are those who are making themselves celibate in service to his kingdom. Jesus is saying, contrary to his contemporary understanding, that there is a place of esteem for the eunuch under his reign. This is a huge reordering of things. The eunuch is now welcomed and received into the kingdom. Now, we see an example of this immediately after the resurrection. If you will, turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. This is found on page 917 of your pew Bible. This is one of my favorite redemption stories, as it's one of the first instances of a Gentile receiving salvation. Now, let me set it up here. Candace was the queen of Ethiopia. And in that culture, any male who served the queen, where he would be in her presence alone, must be castrated. This not only applied to bodyguards, but it also could apply to court officials. And most likely, the Ethiopian eunuch in this story was an investment ambassador in Israel on behalf of Candace. He was also one of those people in the category of God-fearers like Cornelius in chapter 10. These were Gentiles who recognized the deity of Yahweh as the one true God, but were outside of the assembly because they were neither Jews by blood nor circumcision. And this God-fearing man outside the assembly had purchased a scroll of Isaiah. Now, that would have cost quite a bit of money in that time. And we may wonder why. Because there is a promise in Isaiah specific for him. We read it earlier in the service. Remember, this man has two strikes against him. He is a eunuch and he is a foreigner. And if you want to pull out your worship guide to follow with me, you're welcome to, but I'm going to read this again from Isaiah chapter 56, verses 1 through 8. Thus says the Lord, Keep justice and do righteousness, for soon my salvation will come and my righteousness will be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath, not profaning it, and keeps his hand from doing evil. Lest, uh, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant. I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a better name than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. The Lord God, who gathers the outcast of Israel, declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already. Already gathered this man is looking for hope that he might be included and here it is now remember the scrolls didn't have chapters and verses back verse numbers back then so no doubt the ethiopian is looking back in this passage at how he can be included in this which would have pulled him immediately to isaiah 53 describing the suffering servant who atones for the many let's pick up the story here acts chapter 8 verse 29 And the spirit said to Philip, "'Go over and join this chariot.' So Philip ran to him and heard him, that is, the Ethiopian eunuch, reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, "'Do you understand what you're reading?' And he said, "'How can I understand unless someone guides me?' He invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this, "'Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, "'and like a lamb before its shearers is silent, "'he opens not his mouth. "'In his humiliation justice was denied.' The good news is that it is the atonement of Jesus Christ alone that makes one acceptable to God, both Jews and Gentiles alike. Verse 36, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing hallelujah the foreign eunuch who was on the outside is now in the family of god due to jesus now i may get a few people miffed with me for saying this but i can't help but point out that a black man from africa was born again before salvation came to us white europeans here that is your black history month moment from pastor blair this morning (laughs) Like I kept pointing out from Matthew chapter 18, folks, we are all one in Christ. There is not a single one of us that is greater than the other. We all submit to King Jesus because he is the one that makes us acceptable to the Father. Even the foreigner, even the eunuch, our distinctions that separate us, they dissolve under Jesus Christ. But in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus implies that there are those who intentionally remain single— for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to address that next. And the passage that's going to help enlighten us is 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We can see the Apostle Paul's understanding on the subject here. If you will, please turn with me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is found on page 955 of your pew Bible. If Jesus states it's okay to remain single, we need to think through that just a little bit. Now, as you're turning there, I'm going to have you consider that all of us at one time, were single. And to those of us that are currently married, chances are we will find ourselves single again as one spouse will precede the other in death. Now, the median age in the U.S. for a first marriage is 25 years old. So it is conceivable that many of us may spend over half our lives in a state of singleness. Now, some would say Jesus is the ultimate example of being single. Now, that's true to a certain extent. He shows us how to draw contentment from the Father in our state of singleness at all times, but he also marries his bride, the church. He is 100% committed to her. Now, there are those among us who are single and they desire to be married. Jesus' faithfulness is a great example on trusting the Father's timing. But what I'm about to address is a different matter than those people. Because according to Jesus, and what we're about to read in 1 Corinthians 7, there are those who deliberately choose not to be married for the kingdom. Now, in this passage, Paul has much to say about marriage and those that desire marriage. And I'm not going to cover any of that, because we want to zero in on this concept of singleness. But let's pick it up here in verse 6. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 6 Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. And in verse 8, we're going to see that Paul specifically is referring to himself as being unmarried. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. Now, let me stop right there for just a moment. Paul is referring to those who are married as having a gift and those who are unmarried as also having a gift. Now, gift in the Greek is charisma. It's going to be the same word that Paul is going to use in chapter 12 when he designates the, quote, spiritual gifts. Whenever Paul uses the word gift in talking about human interactions among one another, it is always in reference to a gift that builds the church, whether it's spiritual or monetary. The Spirit gives us gifts to edify one another. And I don't think it's any different here. The gift of marriage is not just for a couple to be focused upon themselves alone to the exclusion of others, but also to model the the one flesh relationship between Christ and the church, which should edify the church overall and makes us long for the bridegroom. Now, in addition, the, quote, gift of singleness does not give one permission to be self-centered. Rather, it is given to edify the church in service. And that is precisely how Paul uses that word here. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, he states, to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. Now, why is this good? Well, a little later in the chapter, he's going to state why. I'm just going to move this Lord a little bit forward to, to verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you of that. Now, at the time that Paul wrote his letter, there was an empire-wide famine. At times, it was so severe that some speculated that it might be near the time of Christ's return. That's most likely the distress that's mentioned in verse 26, though it may also refer to some type of regional persecution. Either way, Paul encourages the single Corinthians to consider remaining unmarried, and he gives as his reason in verse 28, yet those who marry will have worldly trouble, and I will spare you of that. Now, as a married person, I have obligations to my wife and my kids. I need to make sure that that they are fed and clothed and taken care of because I must keep them in mind. It prevents me from taking risks that might harm them. I have to maintain a, a certain income in order to take care of them. I cannot simply relocate without taking my family into consideration. But someone who has chosen to remain single does not have such obligations. They are free to serve on behalf of God, however they are directed, without an obligation to a spouse. Now hear this. Paul is not saying that being single is better than being married. He is just saying it's less complicated. After all, he's already put both gifts, marriage and singleness, on par with one another. Now going back a little bit, Paul says that each of us is to live as we were called. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can, gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he was free uh, when called as a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, let him remain, there let him remain with God. Now, don't lose sight that this is stated right in the middle of a discourse on singleness and marriage. Look carefully at verse 17. Paul says, let each person live the life that the Lord has assigned to him or her. Whatever circumstances God has placed you in, single, married, rich, poor, Christian community, Muslim community, persecuted, free. As a believer, live in that moment worthy of the calling that he is giving you. Now, we need to be careful here and make sure we understand this word called. Sometimes we're apt to think that this refers to some type of special calling, like called into the armed services, called into vocational ministry, or called to be a superhero. But that is rarely how it's employed in the New Testament. It means to live in a God-glorifying manner where the Lord has placed you. If you are called to be a husband, God will provide what you need. If you are called to be a mother, God will provide what you need in that role. If you are called to be a missionary or a politician or a schoolteacher, God will provide what you need in such a calling. And the same is true in singleness and marriage. You don't have to be extraordinary in either calling. Neither is more difficult than the other. Both are legitimate callings before the Lord. He values both. So Paul's understanding of singleness, those who remain unmarried are precious to the church. They are ordinary people living as they are called to serve the Lord Jesus within the body of Christ. You don't need an extra boost of supernatural power to choose to live single. So with that thought in mind, we really need to contemplate our understanding of singleness within the body of Christ. This has been on my mind ever since I went overseas to school. At that point, I had been married for 16 years and I had four kids. And as I started school, my family was unable to join me. So I was there in England by myself. And as I visited churches, I was assumed to be single or possibly single again. And I got to experience firsthand how singles are treated by the church. In fact, at at one trendy kind of church, I was invited to be part of a single Sunday school class. That seemed a little strange to me, as they were the only adults that were apportioned off from the rest of the church. It's like we were keeping ourselves in quarantine. I couldn't figure that out. Even as I settled into a wonderful, godly church— Lisa was mortified to learn a little bit later from the older ladies in the congregation that when I first started attending, they were already trying to set me up with their single ladies in the church. (laughs) It's high time that we quit thinking of singles as being unfulfilled in Christ because they're not married and we're treating them like they're somehow less than what God intended them for. We have done a tremendous disservice to our single brothers and sisters by somehow telling them that their lives are inadequate because they don't have a romantic relationship with another person. We have confused an entire generation that thinks they have to be romantically involved with someone else to have fulfillment in life. Is that true? When you look at all of our married couples out there, could all of them say and testify, oh, yes, because I'm married to so-and-so, my life now has meaning. Our true identity is found in our union with Jesus Christ. But too often, the church portrays that one's identity is not in Jesus alone, but you also have to have a life mate. We see this in commercials, don't we? You're on TV all the time. Everyone must be happily in love. We worship at the altar of sex and romance. Folks, sex isn't merely for procreation, nor is it merely for pleasure alone. It is meant as a sign of covenant faithfulness to one's spouse. It's a sign of faithfulness. And for our single brothers and sisters, you remaining celibate is a sign of your faithfulness that God will be your satisfaction and you don't have to worry about finding your satisfaction in someone else. It is a sign of your faithfulness as well. No wonder our brothers and sisters that struggle with same-sex attraction are, are confused. We're telling people that the only way you can be happy is to be married and have romance. That singleness must be a lonely, unhappy existence. That seems to be contrary to what Paul just taught. Perhaps we as parents are responsible for this because we think our children must be married in order to be happy, or, or dare I say it, we might not have grandchildren if our kids remain single. Look, I, I realize there are some singles who are desiring a spouse, And we should do everything we can to pray for them, help them maintain purity, and uphold them should the Lord bring a partner into their life. But yet there are also among us those who are happy to remain as they are. They should be held in a place of honor and valued as God has called them. They should be able to work in our children's areas above suspicion. They should be invited into our homes as family, even if we have an odd number to play the board games. They should be allowed to express their struggles as a single person and not hear that the solution is to find someone they can love. They shouldn't be looked upon as an eligible single person who must meet my newly divorced brother-in-law. Just as I want to be pointed towards Christ for my ultimate satisfaction, they should be pointed in the same way. They should be treated exactly, exactly as the Scriptures call them, as our brothers and as our sisters. Let us repent of an attitude that we're telling people it must be Christ plus marriage. We shouldn't say Christ plus works, right? Why do we think Christ plus marriage? Now, as I've thought about this, I'm really grateful for the single lives of Jesus and the Apostle Paul. (laughs) I'm grateful in how Paul served the church universal as a follower of Christ. I'm, I'm grateful that he points the way in seeking satisfaction in Jesus first and foremost. I need that. Even as a married person, I need that. And perhaps you're either single or you are single again, and you're wondering if you still have value because you don't have a spouse. Well, the gospel gives us a resounding yes. You do matter, and your life does not fall short because of your circumstances. But it is an opportunity for you to display the sufficiency of Christ and the life to which you have been called. So yes, let us honor the marriage covenant as God intended, but let us also honor the gift of singleness. Let's see, even our wonderful singles are a display of the glory of the gospel in such a unique way as they draw down on the perfect satisfaction of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. We are a needy people. And Lord, the problem is, is that we will not rest until we can find our satisfaction and our rest in you. But all these things in our our bodies, our souls, and our minds, Lord, that we keep saying we need this or we need that, it is all an indicator that we are dissatisfied in this world, and that it is only satisfaction in Jesus Christ alone where we can truly rest. And so, Lord, help us to repent of those things that we keep trying to point people towards other than you, you alone. Each of us are so full of sin. Each of us have been in rebellion to you, And yet through your beautiful covenantal love to us, you have sent your son Jesus Christ down to the earth to live a perfect life, to be the propitiation, the sacrifice without blemish, no sin, no stain of sin. And he willingly laid himself on the altar of the cross and you received that in our stead. And the beauty is that we still receive the righteousness of Jesus that when you look on us, you dote on us, you love us because you see us in the same righteousness of your son. Lord, that should satisfy our souls. That should give us a reason to wake up in the morning, a reason to go out and tell our neighbors about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It should be the reason why we want to to love our spouses. It should be the reason why we want to raise our children. It should be the reason that even in our singleness, that we will remain faithful to you alone. Oh, Lord, teach us that all we need, all we have, all we ever wanted is in Christ alone. We pray this because Jesus has finished the work on our behalf. Amen.